Luke. Not that Luke. The Luke in the Bible. Luke chapter 15. We looked at verses 8 through 10 this morning. I'm going to read those verses. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, first word, or, you remember my observation? This is connecting this part of the parable with the previous, the first part of the parable of the lost sheep. So he's illustrating basically the same thing. You remember Mr. Keach and Mr. Gill said, but this part of the parable with a lost coin focuses a little more on showing the darkness of sinners and the need of a powerful good woman or a powerful good shepherd or a powerful good father to save them from their dire situation. Draw, I drew out one theological contemplation, and that was the fall into sin. This text assumes the fall into sin, and we sang a hymn after that. Another theological contemplation or entailment is that this passage, both parts of the parable so far, teach us something about the incarnation. It's wonderful that we happen to read that section of the Athanasian Creed this morning, the incarnation, God in the midst of his people going out and finding the lost. Remember that from a few weeks ago. All of those words, or at least the concepts embodied in those words, are found in the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament teach that at some point in the future from the vantage point of the Old Testament, God would be in the midst of bad shepherds seeking and finding the lost? Yes, the Old Testament teaches that. This parable is about that. It's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and I think aspects of Psalm 23 as well. Jesus is claiming to be God who finds the lost incarnate, we could say. Light bearing. This morning we talked about that lamp, that candle that uh, the woman lit. Light bearing. I think I mentioned this. Is light bearing related to the mission of the Messiah an exclusively New Testament teaching? Only the New Testament and the New Testament alone teaches that Messiah would be somehow related to light that is, that is caused to be seen by both Jews and Greeks. And the answer is no. The Old Testament teaches that, right? Light bearing to find the lost. Is that a new teaching of Jesus? No, it's in strict harmony with the revelation of the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which is cited by the New Testament in reference to our Lord. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, if you've read Matthew, you know this, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Interesting, messianic section of Isaiah 9, 
Then we have Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, cited by the New Testament in reference to our Lord as well. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. The Lord is going to hold the hand of this person that's going to be given as a covenant to the people. This is the son to be incarnate. And I will hold your hand, your is capitalized, the incarnate son. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Ah, I couldn't have written it any better. That really helps my sermon and my my arguments from my sermon, right? Jesus is utilizing concepts found first in the Old Testament, and he's shining the light on himself as the torchbearer of revelation par excellence, as the revealer par excellence, as both light and a lighter of dark men. But notice how the New Testament interprets and applies these concepts in explaining the presence of Jesus on the earth and what he came to do and does. Listen to Luke Chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, something that's revealed in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Now, isn't, isn't that ironic? As an infant, he's taken up in somebody else's arms, and then in the metaphor of Luke 15, 4 through 7, he throws... His sheep over their shoulders, over his shoulders. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, according to the word of promise. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There it is again. Where'd the candle metaphor come from? Text like this. Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, dipping into the Old Testament to say, basically say, this Jesus is that light bearer that was promised. Acts 26, 19 through 23. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region, this is Paul, all, throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying nothing other, nothing, no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. What's he talking about? 
that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Interesting. The ministry of our Lord is read through the lens of these Isaiahic light passages connected to the Messiah who was to come. Even the application of the salvation that was won for us is put in the, the, the language of light. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is, there is light. God spoke light out of darkness, Genesis 1-2. God speaks light into our dark souls, God turns the candle on in the house of the soul. And as a result, as an effect of divine grace in the soul, uh, we respond. So secondly, we see the incarnation here and its connection with the messianic promises of a light bearer in the Old Testament. And then third, a third recognition, uh, theological contemplation, we see here the need for regeneration that leads to repentance. The need for regeneration that leads to repentance. This is especially seen in the lost coin story. The light that comes illuminates, right? The candle that was lit, lit illuminates. The coin goes from darkness to light. This light comes from outside the coin. The coin is not causing light, okay, to come by virtue of the coin. Light is coming by virtue of some other agent to the coin. The light bearer is Jesus, the light of the world. And Jesus closes Acts 1 and 2 of this parable highlighting repentance. Light bearing causes changes of soul that produce repentance. Here's Charles Wesley again, speaking better than he thinks, worshiping better than he thinks. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I love this line. I woke the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Who's the agent causing this to happen? It's not the sinner, right? It's not the found, it's the finder. And that's what this passage is all about. Who's the finder in all three stories? The, the, the shepherd, the woman, the father. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the finder in the midst of the bad shepherds of the first century and the finder ever since. Though it is true that men and women repent, right? Saving repentance. It is also true that no one repents 
apart from the grace of God. Repentance, like faith, is a gift of God. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. Remember that in Ephesians 2. If you just read the first part of verse 1, and then you just jump down, but God, who is rich in mercy, by grace you are saved, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's all by grace. It's all by mercy. We see here, thirdly, the need for regeneration that leads to repentance. And then last, we see mercy. The mercy of God toward undeserving sinners. We see that so far in the two parts of the parable. We're going to see it in the third one as well. Mercy. What, do you, what, what is that line from the movie? Mercy is for the weak. Is that, that, I think that's a karate kid line. Mercy is for the weak, you know. Um, actually, mercy is for the absolutely destitute and helpless, okay? Mercy, as it is among us, may be described as follows. Let's just think about mercy among creatures, okay? We could say, well, among creatures, mercy is a disposition of soul, this kind of this principle from which we want to act toward another, a disposition of soul aroused by viewing somebody in need, okay? You, you're driving down the road, you see that a car, there's a head-on collision. So you see something, you go, oh, there's people in need there. Along with the corresponding attempt to relieve that person or those persons of their need, now you're going to get out of your car and go try to help. And third, the subsequent actual removal of that person's trouble. Now, you can do the first two things, have this sense in your soul, oh, there's trouble, I want to go help that person in need, and then get out of your car and go help them, but what if they're dead? You, you can't do anything, right? Your mercy stopped. It didn't complete its task. There were circumstances that came into this situation that kept you from perfecting your mercy, from bringing it to its end, from actually relieving those persons of the plight they found themselves in. Mercy in us is not a passive attitude. Mercy in us impels the one who has it, to act upon it, but simply because we might be merciful in our soul does not mean we act, does not mean when we act to relieve someone of trouble, we'll be successful. The illustration just proved that, right? You had the disposition of mercy, you took a few steps toward securing the end of mercy, namely relieving the person from their plight, but their plight was much worse than you have the power to overturn. Now, this is not so with God, okay? So mercy among us is one thing. Not only is God merciful toward sinners, God, who is rich in mercy, he has it richly, whatever that means, by the way, does God have mercy as if mercy's over there, mercy's a character trait, mercy is a, a good thing, and it's sitting over there on the shelf and God says, I want that? Or is just mercy God? <laughs> and God's goodness executed toward 
sinners in need. I think that's a better way to say it. He is rich in mercy, Paul says. Mercy, we could say, is the divine goodness and execution for the well-being of troubled souls. Do you see divine mercy in the two stories so far? Yes, over and over and over again. And who is the agent of mercy in both the stories, the shepherd and the woman? Each signify Christ, right? Where do we see God's mercy the most in the incarnation, suffering's glory, and subsequent ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? We don't see God's mercy the most in Tom being kind to me or me being kind to Tom in our time of needs. We see it the most and best exemplified in the cross, in the in the in the in the ministry, in the in the, in the cross, and the resurrection uh, of the Son of God, and His subsequent work to bring the benefits that He has won to the souls of His lost elect sheep all over the earth. There is an abundance, we can say, of divine mercy for sinners of all sorts, shapes, and sizes, no matter where they live, no matter how bad their life is. Divine mercy has no limits. There's no sinner that can say, and I'm so bad, divine mercy can't overcome my plight. So if you're here thinking that, we're going to take you around back afterwards and straighten you out. Divine mercy has no bottom. Divine mercy has no top. Divine mercy has no sides to contain it. It's not a thing that, like, we put in a box. There are no limitations to this mercy because if it is divine, it's therefore infinite goodness in execution toward the well-being of needy sinners. This mercy acts and no one can stop it. This mercy acts over and over and over again and is never depleted or exhausted. You guys have heard this, some of you probably 10 times over the 30-some years you've heard me babble behind a pulpit. But listen to this. This is John Eady. He's a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian commentator on Paul's epistles. And in this mercy, God is rich, based on Ephesians 2.4. It has no scanty foothold in his bosom, for it fills it. Though mercy has been expended by God for thousands of years, and myriads and myriads have been partakers of it, it is still an unexhausted mine of wealth. You know, God can not exert, execute his decree showing his mercy. He can do that a hundred times. He can do it a thousand times. He can do it at all on all the continents of the earth all at once with a million or even a billion. God has the ability to find lost coins all at once a billion times over. But we are not to view that as if God is exerting power or mercy so that the mercy goes from full tank to, oh, we're at an eighth of a tank, better pull up into the mercy tank and fill up. That's not God. That's us. We get tired. We get lose patience with people. And some of it's justified, you know. Um, and we just say, I'm going to bed. God, God doesn't do, God's not like saying, wow, I got up on the wrong side of bed today. I'm not going to put up with this stuff. I'm, I'm, see, I'm going to bed. Maybe I'll get my senses back after some sleep. He's never weary 
nor tired. The Old Testament says that. So when we think of this mercy that we see in here, the coins found. Now, if the coin stands for an elect lost sinner dead in their trespasses and sin, that accentuates mercy more, right? If the lost sheep stands for the same thing, that accentuates mercy more because he's most likely, uh, he's not, there's, there's no way for him to get out of his plight, the lost sheep. There's no way for the coin to find itself. There's no way for the coin to say, hey, good woman, I'm down here in the third crack to the left, you know. Mercy is illustrated in Luke 15 so far in various ways. Neither the lost sheep nor the lost coin deserve a finder. But they got one, both of them. It's not like the coin was of such value that it required the finder to find it because of its goodness in and of itself, not the finder, but the found thing. But not only did they receive mercy by being found, the sheep and the coin, they were brought back into a context of celebration in honor of the finder. Remember that? Both, that happens in both. Comes to his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep or it, my lost coin. Not only did they not deserve to be found, they didn't deserve to be brought into a happy place of rejoicing along with others. But they got it. Their being found was part of a larger program involving the glory and honor of the finder and not the found. Okay, we got found by the good shepherd. We got found by the good mother, and as I'll argue in the weeks to come, we got found by the good father in this parable. But we didn't deserve it, and it's not all about us. It's about the finder. That's pretty huge. And this is how we ought to consider ourselves. If you are a believer in Christ, you are part of a much larger divine program on the earth. Okay, so no navel gazing. No, if this church doesn't meet my needs the way I define what I need, I'm out of here. You know, that kind of stuff. Why didn't he ask me to do this? Why didn't she ask me to do this? What's well, not about you? Now, if you think there are people in the church, including the pastor, that purposefully, the last person I'm going to ask to do that's Jess, because I asked him nine years ago to do something, and he didn't do it, and I'm still not over it. I hope we don't. I'm not like that, by the way. If that did happen, I'm sorry for bringing it up, Jess. Uh, if you think people in the church are like that, that's a bad thing. We should, and if we're like that, that's a bad thing. We shouldn't be that way. So I'm scolding anybody who is like that. It's not about us. We're trying to serve Christ by making our brothers and sisters feel comfortable in the house of God or in the fellowship of the church outside of public worship. If you've been found, you're a part of a huge divine mission project that's all about the missionary of all missionaries. And who's that? The missioned, sent, son, right? It's not about us, it's about the Son. It's about the one who finds the lost. It's about the one who lights up our dark souls. Uh, he got lit up, you know. 
There's a way for, to understand that spiritually. God lit us up. God made us see our sins. God us, God allowed, gave us the eyes to see the glory of Christ. Of, of course, when we first got saved, although Christ was glorious to us, if I read the Athanasian Creed to you, you would have probably crossed your eyes and fallen asleep. What is that? But the more you read, the more you grow, the more you hear, the more you listen, the more you sing good hymns, you're putting things together and he becomes more glorious, never as glorious as he ought to be in our minds. But all this to say, it's about the glorious one, not about those glorified by by him. And we get all the goods, but it's all about him and not us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it. Now, as we've considered some of the theological entailments uh, of this passage so far. Bless it. May we get our eyes off ourselves and get them on Jesus. When that does, we're humbled. We realized how needy we are, how sinful we are, how glorious, how good he is to us, how patient he is toward us, how merciful he is toward us. We couldn't put up with what he puts up with from us, from others as we sing in that hymn. Thank you for divine patience and the divine goodness seen and the divine mercy um, executed toward us, for us, and for our well-being. Now bless as we sing and take the supper together, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.